Welcome to episode 77 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. This episode, I want to introduce someone who we've mentioned a good number of times already on this podcast, but we've never really spent any time on his biographical details. I'm talking about Judah, uh, one of the most important, if not the most important, of the communist military commanders, aside from Mao Zedong himself. We're at the point in our narrative where Judah is about to end up joining his forces with Mao's in the Jingongshan in spring of 1928. So I want to take a step back and spend some time looking at Judah's background before we end up following him from the defeat of the southern expedition near Shantou up to the uprising in South Hunan that he joined in with at the beginning of 1928. And from there, he ended up going up into the Jingongshan with Mao. Zhu De was one of the older communist leaders. You might recall from earlier episodes that Mao, who turned 34 in 1927, was quite a bit older than many of the other communists. Zhang Tailei was 29 when he died leading the Guangzhou uprising, and many communist cadres had joined as teenagers or in their early 20s, and already when they were in their earlier mid-20s were serving as mid-level cadres. So this was an extremely youthful movement. So already at 34, Mao stood out for his age and experience. And Zhu De was even a bit older than Mao. Zhu De was born in 1886, making him seven years Mao's elder and making him 41 already when he joined up with Mao in early 1928. And so he brought quite a bit of experience with him into a very youthful movement. So let's talk about Judah and where he came from. Judah was born into a poor peasant family in Sichuan province. Uh, there's been some confusion about his background because Edgar Snow, in his widely read book, Red Star Over China, said that Zhu came from a family of rich landlords. When Snow was in Yan'an drafting Red Star Over China, he had heard a rumor to that effect. And in general, the communist leadership did not talk a lot about their personal backgrounds. So there was some mystery about where they came from. And of course, that kind of mystique always leads to rumors. So even though later versions of Red Star Over China contained a correction in Judah's biographical note, uh, this was the source of a lot of misinformation about Jews' class background, at least in the, in the non-Chinese speaking world. Uh, one side benefit for us of taking some time now and looking at some aspects of Judah's youth is that, at least early on, his experiences were very much conditioned by his class background as a poor peasant. And so looking at Judah's biography also gives us an opportunity to explore some social history. In any case, Jew's family was very poor. He was the fourth of what would be 13 kids— but only the first eight survived. The last five were drowned at birth because the family couldn't afford to feed any more kids. When we examined Mao Zedong's childhood back in episode 12, we talked about how Mao said that his family only ate eggs once a month and meat three or four times a year. Mao was from a rich peasant family. So as you can imagine, someone like Judah from a poor peasant family had an even more restricted diet. Here's Jew's own testimony on the meals that he ate as a child. Quote, All the meals were the same the year round. 
The men all ate together, for such was the custom, and after them the women and children. We were too poor to eat rice except on rare occasions. Breakfast was a gruel of sorghum, with perhaps a little rice or some beans mixed in, and with a common bowl of vegetables. We also had tea, but without sugar, of course. Dinner and supper consisted of about the same things. Now, this interview was, was done in 1937, back when what we call lunch today was called dinner, and when the evening meal was called supper. Instead of gruel, the sorghum mixed with rice was cooked dry, and there was a common bowl or perhaps two of boiled vegetables. When my brothers and I managed to fish without being caught, we loved to fish, we might have a bowl of rice. Meat or other special food was served only at the Lunar New Year celebration, if at all. Though Sichuan was a salt-producing province, salt was so expensive that poor people bought as little as possible. There were three kinds of salt. The refined white grain salt for the rich, a brown salt for people in medium circumstances, and a blackish, unclean salt sold in solid cakes to poor people like ourselves. This salt was so precious that it was not cooked with in the food. It was not cooked with the food. It was either dissolved in hot water and a bowl of the liquid placed in the center of the table into which we dipped our vegetables, or a solid piece of salt was placed in a bowl in the center of the table and we wiped our vegetables on it. My grandmother apportioned not only the work, but she also rationed the food according to age, need, and the work being done. Even in eating, we did not know the meaning of individual freedom, and we always left the table hungry. I grew up hungry so that later, in the revolutionary movement, it did not bother me so much if I, if I, as if I had never known it. End quote. Uh, the landlord who owned the... Uh, land that Judah's family lived and worked on was known as the king of hell by the region's peasants. In the same interview, Judah described the sort of rent and labor that his family had to pay the landlord. The annual rent was, quote, over half the grain crop together with feudal dues such as extra presents, eggs, a chicken here and there, and sometimes a pig. We all hated these ancient feudal dues. I call them feudal, despite differences of definition of the word, because the landed gentry imposed all sorts of obligations and duties of a servile character on us and other peasants. For example, when our landlord moved his big joint family to their cool mountain home each summer, the men of all his tenant families were obliged to drop everything and transport them without cost. In the autumn, they had to bring them back. Also, in times of social unrest, such as during bandit activities or peasant uprisings, his tenants were obliged to assemble at his home, where they were handed weapons and ordered to fight for their lord and master. The peasants accepted these ancient feudal customs with fatalistic despair. They saw no way out. End quote. There was one main road that ran through the peasant village that Judah grew up in, and along this road would come itinerant artisans who met some of the needs that, that peasant households couldn't meet for themselves. The women in Judah's household would spin cotton thread, and then each winter an old itinerant weaver would come and weave the thread into cloth and dye it in indigo blue. After the coarse woven cloth was hung out to dry on bamboo poles, 
The women in the family would cut the cloth and sew it into clothes, bedding, and whatever else the family needed cloth for. Back in episodes 64 and 65, I talked a little bit about how Wang Zuo, uh, one of the bandit leaders whose gang was merged into Mao's army in the Jingongshan, had worked as an itinerant tailor in the region when he was young. So these itinerant artisans were one of the main ways that poor peasant families got some of their needs met, uh, both in Sichuan and in Jiangsha, and uh, clearly in many other parts of China. Anyways, this old itinerant weaver who had come to Judah's household was a veteran of the Taiping Revolution, which we talked about back in episodes three and four. And of course, he would have to sit there weaving all day, and while he was weaving, he would tell stories. And he would tell stories of Shi Dakai, the Taiping general who led a force into Sichuan. The emphasis in, these, in the tales that this weaver told was on the righteousness of the Taiping's struggle against the Manchus and the foreigners. And if his stories didn't necessarily match events as they occurred, they did represent the way in which the Taiping Revolution was recast in the popular imagination as an anti-imperialist movement, uh, reflecting the further subjugation of China and deepening resentment at the plunder of China by foreigners in the decades after the defeat of the Taiping in the 1860s. Uh, Judah would have been hearing these stories in the early 1890s. Uh, Decades later, Judah remembered these tales as his, early, as his earliest moments of political education. So on some level, this weaver uh, represents a kind of bridge um, between the Taiping Revolution and uh, this uh, child who would go on to become one of the leaders of the Chinese Communist Revolution. Uh, three generations lived in the household that Judah grew up in. Uh, the heads of the household were his grandmother and grandfather, and with them lived their four sons with their wives and children. Now, the oldest of Judah's uncles didn't have any children of his own, and so, because of the poverty of Judah's parents, this uncle and his wife ended up adopting Judah as their own, both to relieve the burden on Judah's biological parents and in order to have a son since they couldn't have children of their own. This, as it turned out, was the sheer chance that would end up being a major factor in Judah managing to break out from living the life of a poor peasant himself as he got older. Judah's family pooled its resources to send three boys to school. It was a big sacrifice in order to pay the tuition, but the family perceived that education was the path for social mobility into the gentry. And because they were a large and thrifty family, they were initially able to send three kids to school, including Judah. Uh, they were the only peasant children in the school, and they faced discrimination from the other students, who nicknamed them the Three Buffaloes, uh, kind of like how Yuan Wen-Sai was called the Cowherd Scholar, as we discussed back in episode 65. Not long after Judah and his cousins started school, Sichuan was hit by a drought that lasted two years, causing harvests to fail. Many people starved during this time, but Judah's family managed to pull through, making major sacrifices, but remaining intact and having no one die of hunger. However, during the drought, they couldn't pay rent. So when the drought was over, their landlord, the aforementioned king of hell, raised the rent on part of their land in order to make up his own losses during the drought from all the peasants who couldn't pay him rent. Uh, 
They couldn't afford to pay the higher rent, though, so the family split up, with Judah leaving his natural parents behind to go with his adoptive parents, who relocated to a place where they found a very good teacher for him, and he was able to continue his schooling. The school that Judah ultimately went to for the longest time was in one sense very traditional, in that much of the day was spent in memorizing classical Confucian texts. However, Judah's teacher had heard of the new forms of modern learning that were entering China. And while he wasn't familiar with the subject matter, he recognized that it was important and encouraged his students to learn about it if the opportunity ever came their way. They were, however, very far out of the way in the remote corner of the countryside that they occupied. For example, at one point a traveler gave a booklet to Judah's teacher and told him that it was a textbook on Western science. For a while, classes were totally focused on reading and memorizing this booklet, just as the Confucian classics were memorized in a normal class. But as it turned out, it ended up just being a pamphlet about a new soap factory in Chongqing that had been set up using modern machinery. Uh, This school in in a remote rural corner of Sichuan became a place where students and teacher worked together to try to learn what they could in order to support China's modernization, uh, which was under modernization for them was understood as involving the adoption of the non-Confucian knowledge systems that had allowed the Europeans, Americans, and Japanese to dominate China. And it also meant uh, ending the rule of the Manchus and ending the imperialist domination of China. Whenever someone from out of town passed through the hamlet where they studied, classes were halted and the visitor was asked to tell the classes about events in the provincial capital of Chengdu or in Beijing if the visitor had been that far. Uh, When Judah was 11 in 1898, during the 100 Days Reform that we talked about back in Episode 8, the students and teacher got very excited and thought that China would finally be saved only to be totally crushed when the Guangxu emperor was placed under house arrest and many of his advisors executed. Then, two years later, the students and teacher breathlessly followed news of the Boxer Uprising, um, which we discussed in episode 9. However, this also provided the first opportunity for Judah to confront the need for a scientific outlook to inform China's rebels. He later recounted this experience in an interview with the progressive journalist Agnes Smedley. Um, I'll give the passage as she gives it in her book, uh, which I've relied on heavily for early biographical details on Judah, since, amazingly, the book remains the only biographical treatment of him in English, uh, despite being published all the way back in 1956, um, which, if you're an Agnes Smedley fan, you know means it was published after she died, but that's a whole other story that we don't have time for here. Anyways, here's the quote from the book. During the summer of 1900, Ju De and his schoolmates often gathered in the home of their old teacher to talk about the boxers and about what they should do, what they what they should do should the uprising spread to their region. Sitting in the midst of his students, old Mr. Shu would say to them, "Consider the Opium Wars, the Taiping Rebellion, the Sino-Japanese War. In these wars, one single foreign nation or two at most" defeated China. Is China stronger today than in the past? Weaker, the boys answered in chorus. 
Can the Yi He Chuan hope to win against the combined might of eight foreign armies now arrayed against them? Yi He Chuan, uh, by the way, was the name of the boxer movement in Chinese and is usually translated as Boxers United in Righteousness, but can also be translated as Righteous and Harmonious Fists. Um, going back to the quote, can the Yi He Chuan hope to win against the combined might of eight foreign armies now arrayed against them? No, replied the boy sadly. Has the high, um, the high was the name that they used for referring to the arch reactionary Empress Dowager Sisha, who was ruling China. Has the high more regard for the welfare of the country and people today than in the past? Less came the tremulous answer. Who ordered the Yi He Chuan to fight, then fled in safety to Xi'an? asked the old man significantly and with deep bitterness. The high breathed the boys. I have taught you the way to save China. What have I taught you? We must study until we can go abroad and master Western science. Then, is the Yi He Chuan way the right way or the wrong way? The wrong way came the sad and in some cases the tearful reply. So we can see that 14-year-old Judah was receiving a patriotic education which emphasized the need for science and for a scientific approach to changing China, even though the education that he received from his teacher, Shi Bingan, was more something to do until the opportunity to study modern sciences abroad arose. Judah continued studying the Confucian classics until 1906, when at age 19, he went to take the examination which would allow him to become a government official. The exams were held in a regional center that was only 25 miles away from where he lived, but it was further than anyone in his family had ever gone. The exams lasted a month, with the candidates sitting for exams for five days straight, before a two-day recess was held while the week's work was graded and some students would get weeded out each week. Judah was successful, but despaired of his family ever being able to come up with the bribe money that would actually be needed to get the government position that he was now qualified for. Besides that, he was disgusted by the system and didn't really want to be an official anyways. But while he was off taking the exams, he heard from other students about the higher normal college in Chengdu a school with modern learning that had a special physical education department where you could study athletics and physical training and you could graduate with a degree in a year and get a job as a teacher of physical training. This greatly appealed to Judah and so despite his success in the official exams, he took off to Chengdu to study physical education. His family only found out what he had done when he returned home after getting his degree. His family expected that he was on his way to becoming a great official, uh, and they refused to permit him to participate in any of the physical labor on the land. Uh, they thought he had been off studying for the whole next higher level of exams, rather than becoming uh, essentially a gym teacher. Uh, they also expected that they could marry him to a wealthy girl because of his status, and that the dowry that his wife would bring in would liquidate the family's debts. So they were very upset when he told them that instead of becoming an official, he was going to set up a modern school with some of the friends he had made while studying, and that he was going to teach physical education. His family had never heard of physical education before, 
And when he described it to them, they were outraged. Judah later recalled his father's reaction, quote, The effect of my confession was terrifying. First, there was a long, shocked silence. Then my father asked what physical training meant. When I explained, he shouted out, saying that the whole family had worked for 12 long years to educate one son to save them from starvation, only to be told that he intended to teach boys how to throw their arms and legs around. Coolies could do that, he shouted in violent bitterness, then turned and ran from the house and did not return while I was there. That night, I heard my mother sobbing. But Judah saw physical education as playing a major role in China's liberation. He, and many other modernizing youth, felt that China needed a more active and strong population in order to defeat the foreign imperialists who kept on preying on China. He felt that the Confucian tradition of contempt for physical work had made China weak, and this was why there was an emphasis on physical education in the modern schools that were being set up across China, including the one that Zhu De set up with his friends. Back in episode 14, we talked about Mao's first published article, which was titled A Study of Physical Education. Um, it was published in 1917, so um, a few years after Zhu De went to become a physical education teacher at the modern school he was setting up with his friends. Uh, we had sort of a long quote uh, from that article back in episode 14, giving uh, Mao's uh, views on the importance of physical education for the uh, patriotic regeneration of China and for China's ability to fight back against uh, foreign imperialism. Um, but since we're revisiting the topic, I thought I would read a different passage uh, from that um, publication by Mao just to give us uh, a sense of the sort of thinking that was going on now that we're revisiting this topic of physical education. Um, this section of, of the article um, by Mao, A Study of Physical Education, is subtitled, The Place of Physical Education in our life. Physical education complements education in virtue and knowledge. Moreover, both virtue and knowledge reside in the body. Without the body, there would be neither virtue nor knowledge. Those who understand this are rare. People stress either knowledge or morality. Knowledge is certainly valuable, for it distinguishes man from animals. But wherein is knowledge contained? Morality too is valuable. It is the basis of the social order and of equality between ourselves and others. But where does virtue reside? It is the body that contains knowledge and houses virtue. It contains knowledge like a chariot and houses morality like a chamber. The body is the chariot that contains knowledge, the chamber that houses virtue. Children enter primary school when they reach the proper age. In primary school, particular attention should be paid to the development of the body. Progress in knowledge and moral training are of secondary importance. Nourishment and care should be primary, teaching and discipline complementary. At present, most people do not know this, and the result is that children become ill or even die young because of studying. In middle and higher schools, stress should be placed equally on all three aspects of education. At present, most people overemphasize knowledge. During the years of middle school, the development of the body is not yet completed. Since today the factors favoring physical development are few, 
and those deterring it numerous, won't physical development tend to cease? And the educational system of our country, required courses are as thick as the hairs on a cow. Even an adult with a tough, strong body could not stand it, let alone those who have not reached adulthood or those who are weak. Speculating on the intentions of the educators, one is led to wonder whether they did not design such an unwieldy curriculum in order to exhaust the students, to trample on their bodies and ruin their lives. If there is one who does not accept this, they punish him, and if someone has an above-average intelligence, they give him all sorts of supplementary readings. They fill his ears with sweet words and seduce him with generous rewards. Alas, is this not what is called injuring a man's son? Uh, that's a reference to the Confucian Analects. How stupid! The only calamity that can befall a man is not to have a body. What else is there to worry about? If one seeks to improve one's body, other things will follow automatically. For the improvement of the body, nothing is more effective than physical education. Physical education really occupies the first place in our lives. When the body is strong, then one can advance speedily in knowledge and morality and reap far-reaching advantages. It should be regarded as an important part of our study. Learning has its roots and branches. Affairs have their end and their beginning. To know what is first and what is last will lead near to the way. Uh, this is another quote from a Confucian uh, volume. This is exactly what I have been trying to say. All right, that's the end of the passage from Mao. Um, and I just read that out to contextualize um, Judah's decision uh, to become a physical education teacher and uh, how he thought of it as a patriotic act. Because I think, um, you know, the, the status of physical education teachers in uh, most of the countries where uh, people are listening to this podcast is is going to be a little counterintuitive to think of that as something like a patriotic act. But this was actually a, uh, the emphasis on physical education was very important to the um, revolutionary nationalist modernizers of this sort of pre-Marxist period of uh, Chinese um, revolu of the, of the Chinese Revolution. So. Um, that's, uh, that's just a little context there. And, of course, it's always fun to read a long passage from Mao. I think this is a good place to wrap up this episode. Um, next time, we'll begin by talking about the surprisingly contentious career that Judah had as a physical education teacher. And before I go, I want to thank everyone again for your ratings, reviews, and contributions. They're all very much appreciated. Thank you.